Happy New Year! I sincerely hope this finds you doing well during these very strange and surreal times. My name is Ariana Karp, and I'm delighted to announce the relaunch of Tabling the Podcast. Tabling is going to work in partnership with the International Shakespeare Center Santa Fe to commence a Radio Shakespeare Lab. This project will include creating a complete radio library of Shakespeare's canon and also five episodes of in-depth tablework discussions about text, character, and dramaturgy for each of the plays. Over 50 actors, directors, and theater makers will be participating in this endeavor. Our regular programming will commence on Monday, January 4th. As a very special treat, we are delighted to bring you this interview that I conducted with Jim Shapiro in the summer of 2018. In addition to teaching English at Columbia University, Jim has penned some marvelous books about Shakespeare, including Shakespeare and the Jews, 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, Contested Will, Who Wrote Shakespeare, and The Year of Lear, 1606. He is truly a Shakespeare scholar extraordinaire. His latest book, Shakespeare in a Divided America, What His Plays Tell Us About Our Past and Future, was released to great acclaim in March of this year and was one of the New York Times 10 best books of the year. Uh, speaking on a personal note, I read it in about a day. It was quite a page turner and I would highly recommend it to anyone who is the least bit interested in politics, history, Shakespeare, or all three. The interview you're about to hear was part of the International Shakespeare Center Santa Fe's Year of Lear programming. We brought Jim out to talk about King Lear, his books, and his scholarship. In the interview, we touched upon the Elizabethan versus the Jacobean Shakespeare, the differences between the quarto and folio endings of King Lear, the changing attitudes and contemporary interpretations of Lear's eldest daughters in the Me Too era early 17th century attitudes and anxieties about madness and poverty, and a wonderful anecdote about his correspondence with former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. I would like to personally thank Jim Shapiro very much for participating in this interview and also to the ISC Santa Fe for producing this event. Stay tuned for more from Tabling the Podcast and be sure to subscribe. You can visit us at tablingthepodcast.com. You can email us at tablingpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at tablingpodcast. And you can now become a patron of Tabling the Podcast by visiting our webpage, patreon.com slash tablingthepodcast. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more content soon. Stay safe. I guess it's this evening now. Um, we are so thrilled to have Mr. Shapiro here. Um, Call me Jim. Oh, all right. Yeah, thank you. Um, and we are going to be having a little discussion about King Lear and also on the book The Year of Lear, 1606, um, which is a quite remarkable year for Shakespeare. 
in which he wrote King Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra, which is, you know, pretty good haul for, for one year. <laughs> so um, I was just wondering what it was about this quite extraordinary year that led you to write this book. Um, first of all, I'm really delighted to be here. Anybody who's not delighted to be in Santa Fe should have their something checked out. Uh, and uh, I'm not only grateful for the invitation and to be in conversation with you, both backstage and now on stage, uh, but really to meet a group that is invested in a play for this year that I spent 10 years uh, researching and writing about. And the short answer to that question is, when I was a, a much younger man, I spent 15 years researching and writing a book. Sorry to interrupt, when you get please, the microphone. Please do. <laughs> is that better? Yeah. Okay. I, I really don't need a mic for a room like this. I can project, I promise. Well, yeah. So let me start that answer again. Why a book about the year 1606? Uh, when I was a much younger man, I spent 15 years researching and writing a book uh, about the year 1599. And I was unhappy about the kind of anecdotal way scholars looked at history. And I thought, in the ignorance of youth, why not read everything written in that year? Why not look up every weather report, every manuscript, every military account, so that I would actually be able to locate the plays Shakespeare was writing within a much denser and richer context. And I just didn't know that it was going to take me that long to do this. And uh, I have all the energy of youth behind me. And I wrote uh, a book that people liked called 1599, the only book where the title and the price were identical. <laughs> and um, when I finished it, uh, when I finished it, I realized that I had written a book about the Elizabethan Shakespeare. And I knew all too little about the Jacobean Shakespeare, by which we mean the Shakespeare who was a creative artist and still an actor and playwright after 1603 when Queen Elizabeth died and King James came down from Scotland where he was King James VI and was King James I of England. And it turns out that Shakespeare's life took creative life, took a pretty serious turn at that point. It's a little bit like writing under Obama and then writing under uh, the president. That's a real shift. And it actually took Shakespeare a couple of years to find his footing to be able to make that shift. And it took me 10 years to investigate fully and just as fully what I had done with 1509 with, with 1606, and uh, had I done it in reverse, it would have been a disaster, uh, because this was a much more difficult book to write, because these plays are much more difficult. You've acted in a couple of yeah. them, you know how difficult these plays are. Absolutely, I think there's a, a, a shift that you see in, in the language between 
the Elizabethan Shakespeare and the Jacobean Shakespeare, and, and even just beyond Shakespeare himself, looking at his contemporaries, if you look at Marlowe, the great line, the sort of hammering you over the head with the verse, and then you look at Webster, who has these crazy, convoluted ways of, of writing. It's one of the ways in which I know what you're saying is true is, uh, when I'm not a professor at Columbia, I spend my time as a butcher of Shakespeare for various theater companies. They come to me and they say, Hamlet is four hours long. Give us a 90-minute version. <laughs> and I get out the cleaver and put on the white coat to protect my nice clothes and get to work. And it's really easy cutting early plays. They just, the speeches go on too long. And you know just where you can cut them. But when you get to plays like King Lear or Macbeth, Luckily, yeah. Macbeth is short, sure. but uh, I've still had to cut it. And wow. it's really, really uh, a, a tough piece of meat to cut. And uh, I lose a lot of sleep over that. And it forces you to realize how dense and naughty Shakespeare is getting. And one of the things that tells you is Shakespeare knows his audience. And he understands that even the best playgoers in London or Stratford, Ontario, or Stratford upon Avon, England, or anywhere in the United States may have seen dozens of productions. But he was writing for people, some of whom were illiterate, that had seen hundreds of productions. And knowing that, he both pushed his actors and challenged his audiences. He did not reproduce, oh, Henry the Fourth work well, I'll do the prequel, I'll do the sequel, uh, no Star Wars for him. He kept changing what he was doing, he kept changing the language he was using, the kind of issues he was exploring, and he was responding above all in a year like 1606 to the pressure of the times. Absolutely, and you write a lot in, in all of your books about how Elizabethan Jacobean attitudes about certain things sort of reveal the inherent anxieties within that um, society, but also that Shakespeare was sort of the master of exploring identity crisis, which seems to be what is going on in England or perhaps Britain at the time. That, that's a really good question, and you know, early on in his plays, uh, the play I love to teach first to uh, college students is the comedy of errors. Uh, it's early, it's short, it's funny, it's violent, and it's about twins. It's about two sets of twins. And I love the play. I'm not a twin so far as I know. Uh, <laughs> scientists tell us one out of every eight of us now was in the room initially a twin, and the other twin was absorbed by us, which is a kind of scary talk. <laughs> and one of the things that I like to do, uh, if I seem like a nice guy, it's only in the same context. But in a New York context, you can get away with a lot of stuff. So I, I teach a group about this size, and I tell them that they were admitted to the class because they're part of a 20-year experiment. And this is the day the experiment comes to fruition. Waiting outside in the hall are their identical twins. They're required to have each person agree to meet that identical twin 
by the School of University's Ethics Committee. And um, is there anyone here uncomfortable about that? <laughs> You'd be amazed at the answers. Like, why don't you want to meet your identical twin? I'm afraid she's better looking than I am. <laughs> and I said, you're identical. <laughs> and then I tell them, they're all enrolled at Harvard. You're enrolled at Columbia. And kind of up the stakes about the identity crisis that's in this play. And when you get to a play like King Lear, the identity crisis is a different one. Shakespeare spent the first half of his career writing about England these 10 English histories, beginning with the first Henry VI, part one, two, and three, Richard III, King John, Henry IV, one and two, I guess he did sequels, Henry V. <laughs> and then when King James comes to the throne, he's no less interested in history, but you have a Scottish king, and you have a Scottish king who comes to the throne of England in 1603 and says, you were all English until I came here, but I, I'm king of both England and Scotland. So we're going to join these kingdoms together and we're going to call it a union of England and Scotland and Ireland, Ireland and France. France. <laughs> and you're all going to be British from now on. One day you're English, the next day you're British. And no one on either side of the border was happy with this, except maybe Shakespeare. Because he said, great, he's given me an identity crisis, throw it into my lap. This is my bread and butter as a dramatist. And I'm going to begin a play called King Lear about the division of the kingdoms. And I'm going to drag out a map of Britain, and I'm going to say, Albany and your wife, you get Scotland. You get Cornwall. You get London and its environs. And then it all goes to sea pretty quickly. So Shakespeare, so did King James's plan for a union of Scotland and England, which did not happen in his lifetime and did not happen for a hundred years after King Lear was first stayed. So it was a real crisis in what it meant to be a member of a nation. And uh, his next play, Macbeth, is also a Scottish play, as we like to call it. So Shakespeare pivots pretty quickly and in this year begins to really reflect the anxieties of his audience about who they were in relationship to their monarch. Absolutely, and, and you sort of distinguish that the, the plays he wrote during Elizabeth's reign that had to do with history were English history plays, and then King Lear and Macbeth are sort of British history plays. And I guess Cymbeline later as Cymbeline well. Cymbeline later is weird, wacky, yeah. let's bring in whales as well. <laughs> uh, and let's why he writes a play in which you have ancient Romans and modern-day Italians is beyond me. I think at that point, later in his life, he's having some fun. Yeah. And he's not really, really interested in verisimilitude at that point. Uh, but he is interested in going back and delving into history to explore the kinds of crises and, in King Lear, the kind of apocalyptic and traumatic experiences that everyone in his culture is experiencing in the year of Lear. Absolutely, and just to, to talk about that, I think even skipping to the end of King Lear, which I think is sort of almost critically universally thought of as sort of the most apocalyptic sort of 
negative ending in all of Shakespeare. Um, how, how would that resonate with the recent trauma of the gunpowder plot? Yeah, I'll, I can give a two-part answer, slightly okay. longer uh, than I like, but uh, the first part will set up the, the second part. Imagine for a moment you're all time travelers and you're back in the 1590s in England. And there's a play in particular that you love, and that play is called King Lear. It's not spelled L-E-A-R, it's spelled L-E-I-R. And it's a great play. It's about a king with three daughters who has this falling out with his daughters, especially the youngest one, Cordella. And uh, you love the play because the ending of it is so heartwarming. At the end of the play, no one dies, everyone is reconciled, and King Lear and his youngest daughter are together again in a fond embrace. And it's a beautiful tragic comedy, and you've seen it a bunch of times, and in fact, you're bringing your friends to see an updated version done by <laughs> the Kingsmen, Shakespeare's company, at the Globe Theater in, say, spring of 1606. You're gonna love this play, happy ending, <laughs> And then you watch the train <laughs> Everybody dies. And your friend is beginning to give you those books about halfway through. And you keep reassuring, no, 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 it's going to end well. Spoiler alert, it does not So Shakespeare, Shakespeare did not create this story. He lived at a time where creativity meant something else. So I like to describe him as the great gut renovator of other people's <laughs> artistic structures. He, he looks at it, he has the instincts of a structural engineer and an interior designer, and he goes in and sees what's wrong. And he says, I can make this work. So Shakespeare had seen this old play of King Lear. He probably acted in it because it's echoed so often in his own King Lear, and it's published in the months before he starts writing his own King Lear, and may have even prompted him to finally, after a decade of seeing his play on the boards, an old Queensman play, a, a rival stellar company from the late 1580s. So that sets up the second half of this. In the interim between the old play of King Lear and the old Elizabethan sensibility, we beat the Spanish at the Armadas, you know, we're, we're okay now, we've survived all threats. Something happened in November the 5th of 1605, the month before 1606 rolls around. And what happened is what we would call now a failed large-scale terrorist attack of the kind that had been unimaginable. 20 or so disaffected Catholic gentry got together and they said to each other, King James had promised us when he was starting out as King of England that he would be more tolerant of the Catholics. He has gone back on that promise and his regime is cracking down on us and he's a young guy with an heir and a spare and we're gonna be stuck with these yeah. stewards forever. <laughs> and unless we do something about it now, the Catholics in England are gonna be crushed. And they decided to blow up Parliament when King James was there on November the 5th in 
there to make a speech in favor of the Union of Scotland and England. And James's son was going to be there. His queen was going to be there. The religious and political leaders of the land were going to be there. Blow all them up, probably collateral damage of 30,000 Londoners as well. There'd be fires, there'd be devastation. But there would also be the restoration of Catholicism in England. Guy Fawkes and his Confederates were caught the evening before that devastating attack. And uh, the ensuing months of 1606 followed a process of their capture, torture, trial, and brutal public execution, the only thing probably more entertaining than Shakespeare's plays. Uh, and the government had to decide how to spin this attack. And there were a lot of conspiracies then as now about whether the government knew about this, had infiltrated, had spies who were involved uh, in the aborted or defeated uh, gunpowder plot. But for the nation, this was Trump. Here you had fifth colonists who were going to destroy the nation. And it was terrifying. And for Shakespeare himself, who grew up in uh, a part of England which had a heavy Catholic constituency, and the gunpowder plot was actually plotted in part on lands adjoining lands Shakespeare had recently leased. And the bad man for the Catholic relics in the Midlands was Shakespeare's next door neighbor. So this was personal. It's as if you knew firsthand some of the 9-11 plots, you know, and people would be looking at you a little bit funny after that. So this was traumatic for the nation, but great for Shakespeare, yeah. because he was able to write a play and another play, Macbeth, shortly after, that delved into the deep anxieties about not only the division of the kingdom, but the destruction of the royal family and of the hierarchy as we know it. And one of the most exciting events I would love to have been at but wasn't yet born was <laughs> Christmas 1606 at the Royal Palace where Shakespeare's company was brought in to perform 15 or so plays. The first of them, the highlight of the Christmas season before King James, King Lear. And to have been at that production at the end of this year would have been, I would have taken that over seeing him. Uh, you know, coin toss, perhaps. No, I think I would take this. I would love to watch King James watching this play and think about what it meant for him. Absolutely. And actually, just to um, just to go off of of that, a question I had was about the ending. And there's two very different endings of King Lear: one in the Quarto, which was published in 1608, and one in the Folio, which wasn't published till 1623. And how how different they are, and, and yeah. what effect they have on the play. A lot of scholarly blood has been spilled. <laughs> it used to be just ink, but on this question, it's more than ink. That's People no longer talk to each other about this, and it has a kind of history because there are two texts of King Lear uh, that we know of. Um, by the late 17th century, 
what editors would do was combine or conflate the two versions of King Lear into the greatest hit, King Lear. And they move in slightly different directions, especially at the end. And the 1608, the Quarto version, is unrelievably dark. I mean, just unbearable. And almost surely that was the version that was staged before King James and King James and his court in, in 1606 at Christmas. And someone, and we don't know whether it was Shakespeare or not, and this is where the scholarly division occurs, because in the 1980s, it was a really exciting move to say Shakespeare revised King Lear sometime around 1610 or 11, and uh, that accounts for the the many, many changes, substantive changes, between these two versions of the play. And that's been pulled back a bit. I'm very sympathetic with the idea of Shakespeare as a reviser of his own work and responding to what worked and what didn't work because he's a man of the theater. And, and, and he understood what it meant to keep people coming to see his plays. But I think that, that he or someone or the actors or uh, whoever was responsible for the changes in the folio version made it slightly more cheerful. So when I go to see a production of King Lear, and we can talk about this, in the last few years there have been 10 major productions of this play. Uh, and that's just counting New York and London and Stratford. Uh, so it's really on our radar, it really speaks to our moment. But I always wait for the moment where they get to the end of the play. Are they going the quarto route or are they going the folio route? And uh, it turns on simply, if I'm King Lear and you are Cordelia, I'm saying, look there, look there, her lips. Do you want your king to die thinking she lives? Do you want him to die, in other words, deluded? Or do you want your king leader? I really don't have a good sense of a Santa Fe answer to this question. <laughs> do you want your leader to simply, she's dead as her. And everything I've learned about the world is it's a terrible, horrific place when people make the kind of mistakes that I, as a ruler, have made. And I'm dying, suffering from those decisions. And whoever was responsible for the folio or 1623 Leah said, let's just give him this moment. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's let him die deluded. It's not the worst thing in the world. And Frank Langella, you know, look there, look there. I can run through the gaps <laughs> of King Lear, how they've handled this line. And each director's choice about whether you want to open the door just a crack and let in a little light and let in a little hope. I myself, Cordo all the way. <laughs> and I my Lear dark. And uh, uh, I can understand why that changed a place, and I can even understand why in the Restoration, 50 years later, Manny Mayhem Tate came to King Lear 
with a true Broadway sensibility. And he said, you know what? This Cordelia dying at the end? Nah. And Edgar, he's eligible. Let's marry them all. Everybody's happy. That version of King Lear held the stage for 150 years. That's what we want. We want a happy. I know you may be with me in 1608, but they want. Uh, We're not going to give it to you. Well, Marvel Thomas is doing very well. <laughs> um, so just getting into the play and some of these remarkable characters, we talked a little bit about the performativity, I guess, of the, of the play. Um, I'm always quite fascinated by the fool in King Lear. And the fool to me is, and I think you write about this a bit in, in the book as well, the, the fool is unique fool in the Shakespearean canon. And I wonder what it is, obviously Robert Armin, this remarkable actor who he was writing for, but what is it about Lear's fool that, that sort of distinguishes him? It's a great part, first of all. It, it's a spectacular part, and Shakespeare wrote for particular actors in particular roles. So he knew he had been stretching Richard Burbage as a tragedian, going back to Richard III, through Hamlet, through Othello, and when Burbage got his sides for Lear, his knees probably started shaking, <laughs> and he was both, both cursing and thanking Shakespeare at the same time. Because this is Mount Everest, and any great actor who's played this part will tell you this is a part that defeats even the superstar actors. And they want to do it again and again. Ian McKellen did it brilliantly uh, six or seven years ago. He's now doing it again. He wants another shot at it. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll go over and see that uh, in the West End in, in, in September and see whether, in fact, he's gotten better or, or worse. And, uh, Anthony Sher, who just played for the Royal Shakespeare Company, cut his teeth playing the fool in it. Uh, and playing the fool first gives you insight into Lear. Because the fool is Lear's alter ego. And the fool is. A shadow, perhaps. <laughs> shadow, right. And uh, he speaks truth to power. And the lessons the fool imparts are absorbed by Lear. One of the, the strangest things about the play is the fool disappears midway through the play with the line, and I'll go to sleep at noon. And that's the last we see of him. And it's just strange. There's no other way. <laughs> it's not that Cordelia and the fool were double. That's not how it work back then. A teenage boy played her part. Robert Armin played his part. But there's something about the osmotic relationship, the osmosis that takes place between the fool and, 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 and Leo. And one of the, the great innovations that took place when Tony Sher, Anthony Sher, played the fool was Lear in his madness in the storm scene accidentally kills him. And that was brutal. And that initiated a whole tradition of fool bashing. And I mean that quite literally. Because when Sam Mendes was directing a brilliant but dark production, you would love, almost too dark for me, um, took a metal bar, and the fool was in a bathtub, and just beat him to death. And that was hard to watch. But he is, in a sense, the, the magnet for a lot of the energy that flows through the sisters, through Lear, 
And when Lear says famously at the end, and my poor fool is hanged, it speaks to both Cordelia's death moments before and to the fool's death earlier in the play. In that Ian McKellen production, they had soldiers hang from the fool, and you watched him sway during intermission, which was uh, quite, it was hard to eat your ice cream. <laughs> He is an extraordinary character for an extraordinarily capable actor, Robert Armin. And he interacts a lot with Goneril and, to a lesser extent, Reagan. And those are characters who, in my theater-going career, have risen in significance. And when casting decisions are made, they become more and more central. And I would say any King Lear production you see in the next five years will be Me Too productions that put more and more emphasis on the two elder daughters rather than the uh, the goody two-shoes. <laughs> One of the things Shakespeare did in rewriting the old and anonymous King Lear, Cordelia talked too much in that version and began to get on everyone's nerves. So he really cut down on the number of lines and the number of scenes she has so she's a much more sympathetic character. Well, I am uh, transitioning to the sisters. Um, I think it's it's really fascinating how they're treated in, in modern productions. One of the things, I recently saw the Tony Cher production in uh, New York when it came to BAM, and one of the decisions that uh, they made, which I thought was incredibly illuminating about the relationship between Lear, was when uh, in the first scene he, he says to Goneril, to thine and Albany's issue, come on, give me some grandkids, essentially was yes. the impulse of that. And then a couple scenes later, he's cursing her and her womb. And that was an incredible, I thought that it just illuminated that relationship yeah. in a when really put, powerful way. When he put his hand and then started <sighs> crushing Kelly Williams, yeah, uh, that it was, was the most electric scene in, in that production. I would agree with you. <laughs> For those of you file this under, don't try this at home. It's a, it's a really hard scene to do right. And one of the actors who had meant the most to me when I was a young theater goer in, in my late teens and sleeping in church basements in London and seeing as many productions as I could was Jonathan Price's Hamlet. And it was in 1982. And, uh, it was the greatest production of anything I've ever seen in my entire life. So I waited about 30 years to see Jonathan Price now play King Lear. And this was at the Almeida maybe seven or eight years ago. And the production was going great until the scene where King Lear and Goneril are at it. And he walked up to her and he touched her in such a way and she recoiled in such a way as it almost shouted out, where there almost was a banner above this, child molestation, sexual abuse. And I wanted to whip out my phone and like dial 911 and get him arrested at that moment. And it took away. It's not that you can't hint at the cruelty and barbarity and coldness of King Lear as a father, but that was one of those ideas that they should have worked on in rehearsal and pulled back from because it, it sunk an otherwise stunning production because 
you lost all sympathy for King Lear if he was a molester of his own daughters. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think also distinguishing them, I think a sort of um, more traditional interpretation is that they're, they're sort of these identical evil sisters, but I think in the text, they're completely different characters, and I think Goneril for my reading is much smarter than Regan and sort of the, the thinker of the two and Regan is very reactionary. And I was just, um, I was wondering if, if you thought it was also those, those two teenage boys who probably played Rosalind and Celia who played Regan and Goneril. But what is, what is different um, about Regan and Goneril and were they sort of Shakespeare trying out this new type of woman which he's then going to work on even more in Lady Macbeth. And, and Cleopatra. Cleopatra. Really and Margaret, powerful. really, I guess, in the back. <laughs> they're just really powerful, threatening women. There's yeah. no way around it. And yeah. Shakespeare's looking at different versions of that. I completely agree that the two sisters are made into sick figures and almost yeah. twins. In many of the productions that I saw uh, early on in my theater-going career, now more energy is going into casting superstar actors in those roles. And you see what a great part Regan is, what a great part Goneril is. And uh, they're not there often, but they get to have an affair with the same man, which is very <laughs> exciting, especially when you have uh, a charismatic uh, uh, Edmund in the play. And they're wearing the pants to a large extent in their relationships. And like Lady Macbeth, they're struggling with husbands with whom they're not in sync about their needs, and um, having grown up with King Lear, it makes sense. And one of the one of the things that's happened in, especially in American productions of this play over the last 15, 20 years, is more and more emphasis, rightly or wrongly, and I, I never judge, I work with a lot of directors, and my job is to bite my tongue about whatever kind of creative approach they take. If it's set on Mars, that's great. If it's set <laughs> in the future, that's great too. In part because um, I live in 1599 or 1606, and I trust their instincts for feeling their way through contemporary issues. But um, how you deal with an old man raging like this, it's tempting for many directors to make him early onset Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, it plays well, and one of the things that does is creates more sympathy for the daughters. What are we gonna do with this guy? He's, mm -hmm. he's just out of control. We must do something, as they say. And there's much more sympathy. So if, if I were to anticipate where we're going in the next few years with productions, the older sisters are going to generate a lot more uh, empathy and a lot more feeling from audiences as, as time goes on, as many of us are stuck with, with aging parents and the challenges of dealing with them. That's great. Um, with the character of, I'm looking at now, I'm thinking about Lear and Edgar, and madness and feigned madness. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering, can we learn anything about um, Elizabethan attitudes and anxieties um, about both madness and poverty in Edgar's sort of feigned madness and also 
seeing the contrast of someone pretending to be mad and Lear actually going mad, and, and what that would mean for Jacobean uh, theater goers. I think Shakespeare was very interested in a constellation of issues around this. One, one is obviously madness, and another is senility, and another is feigning madness, and yet another is um, demonic possession. Yeah. And one of the things that he was reading very closely while writing King Lear was Harznet's book about demonic possession. And we know it's because the names of all the devils that Edgar uses, <laughs> a lot of it, he's just yanking and placing. He's not even like, oh, that sounds good, and I'll change it a little bit. No, 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 these five in a row, telling or whatever it is, that's good too. I'm just going to use this. And it's a handbook about demonic possession. And it also helped that King James was completely invested in exposing fake demonic possession cases. And what I mean by that is a young girl somewhere, you know, in Oxfordshire, would claim to spit out pins and get into a fit, and the devil is inside of me and telling me what to do. And they were heavily sexualized cases as well. Very crucial. <laughs> very, very, very. Rosemary Bay is. Um, and King James would make it his business to sit down with the young woman and force a confession. And Shakespeare gets interested in this and it finds its way into this play, into the scene in Macbeth. Is that a dagger that I see before me? What's real? What's not? And he runs it up against the other thing he talked about, which is poverty disenfranchisement, income inequality, call it what you will. But this play is steeped in that. And one of the things that uh, uh, you mentioned that Tony Sherrill, directed by uh, his partner Gregory Doran, the RSC has money. And one of the things they did with that money was hire 20 extras to dress as beggars and run around without saying a word the whole time. And when King Lear looks at them late in the play and sees them, and gives that unbelievable and unprecedented speech. I've taken too little care of this poor naked wretches. You see them. They're the homeless people you walk by every day and don't give a buck to. And all of a sudden, they're in this play and on this stage. And Shakespeare writes that into his own culture, where there was no safety net for those who fell out the bottom. And many actors at that time and many people in his culture and in the Midlands where he grew up fell prey to changes in the economy and downturns and uh, little ice ages and bad crop harvests and, and the rest. So this was a society where the vulnerable suffered hugely. And this is a play that is more attentive to that than any other play Shakespeare wrote. Wonderful. Um, on the subject, moving a little bit back into uh, the gunpowder plot and treason, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think treason was the highest crime you could commit during this time. Yes. Um, and betrayal of one's country was sort of seen as the deepest evil. All the people in the lowest circles of hell were people who had betrayed or, uh, their country or their, um, their leaders. And um, I'm just wondering how a Jacobean audience would react to Cordelia essentially being 
leading a French army to invade Britain, even though she's on supposedly the good side. But how would they react to this? I mean, they, they had so much anxiety about a foreign invasion. This is the problem when you do a gut renovation. <laughs> There's always a structural obstacle that you have to deal with. And Shakespeare dealt with this in two ways. One is, he created a subplot. It's the only tragedy he wrote that has a subplot. It's the subplot of Gloucester and his bastard son, uh, Edmund, and his legitimate son, Edgar. And the other thing he does is when Cordelia comes with an invading French army, he has her leave her husband home. <laughs> and it's as if it's an English woman at the head of this army, yet they are defeated. Yeah. And you can make the argument that people in the audience at the Globe watching this play would have thought that is treasonous behavior. On the other hand, it was also treason to imagine the death of a king. And that's all Shakespeare did, not today. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, treason is one of those funny terms. And Shakespeare is a deeply, deeply political writer. And he's writing for a particular moment. And I'm always a bit nervous when my friends and colleagues who write books about Shakespeare kind of confuse a 400-year-old play with this moment. We hold those two up against each other. They mutually illuminate each other or not, depending upon the proximity of the pressures of that moment to the play. And I'm working on a production of Othello right now. Uh, they're in tech. I'm useless during tech, so I came out here in time because Sunday night I'll, I'll, I'll be dressed dress rehearsal for this production. And the director probably will not like me saying this, but I'll say it here and hopefully it won't drip back to But I think he imagined this as a production primarily about race. But when you have in New York City an attorney general in, of New York slap and then choke woman, and then you're mounting a play in which a woman is slapped midway through and choked at the end, the moment overtakes even the best of artistic vision. And it's also deeply about race, but it's layered with this. And what I'm saying is, Shakespeare's plays more than any other playwright, and I know, Alain, that you were immersed in classical plays that were not Shakespeare's, which is why Alain is the best place to train in the world. But that having been said, his plays somehow continue to speak to us. Not all the plays, and not the same plays in England or Germany or Ireland as in America. And not all the plays in the North or the South or the East or the West over 200 years in this country. So I'm interested in the ways in which Shakespeare holds a mirror up to us, but I would be very wary about saying Shakespeare shows us what Donald Trump is like. Shakespeare never knew him, and I don't know how well Trump knew Shakespeare, so I, there's a fire wall. And I don't know how well Obama knew Shakespeare. I knew Bill Clinton knew his Shakespeare pretty well, and I know Abe Lincoln knew his Shakespeare very well. And I can tell you that Eisenhower and Truman knew their Shakespeare well. 
like Shakespeare and American presidents is the subject of a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Which you should come to tomorrow. <laughs> um, I was interested just in, uh, because this is a sort of very pagan play, King Lear, there is an absence of, of Christianity that he took from, he took out of, he took out the sort of Christian piety in the original text. And you sort of argued a bit that you see that Gloucester's blinding is sort of like an exorcism, a Jacobean exorcism of sorts. Can you sort of delve sure. into that? Um, what happens to Gloucester is terrifying. And, and, and you know, again, that time travel experiment, your friend didn't tell you that you would have to watch a man have his eyeballs ripped out in the middle of this play. And it's unbearable. Uh, and um, my wife and I took our young son. Uh, we had a kind of Pavlovian deal. That we, what happens if you take a small child from the age of five or six to as many Shakespeare productions <laughs> as going to go to? And the ones that he didn't really like were King Lear productions because we took him to see Derek Jacobi. They had a beautiful gray wall in the back. And the eyeball was ripped out and uh, oh, stuck to the wall and then kind of dripped down. And we had front row seats and he said, I'm done. <laughs> and he was never taken to the Osobi by himself until that day and took one home. Uh, it's terrific. And it is a kind of, it, you know, the whole Gloucester subplot is Shakespeare's invention. He pulls it out of Sydney's Arcadia. But the scene in which you force Gloucester up, and I hate, and I just hate watching it. Edgar leads him to the edge of a cliff and has him imagine he's committing suicide as a way to purge those suicidal feelings. It's very I'm difficult. Not there. I'm not you know, <laughs> yeah. I think there are problems with this play. I know there are problems with this play. It doesn't run on wheels like Othello. Othello is a perfect. Plot. Coleridge said so 200 years ago and he was right. King Lear is not a perfect plot, but King Lear goes to places which no other Shakespeare play goes to, which is why great actors want this role. And one of the, the really nice things about today is when I say great actors, it means when Glenda Jackson wants to play King Lear, she oh. plays King Lear. And I, I missed that production last year. I'm told by everybody that you know she just wore the clothes that you're wearing now, and, and that's all they did. And it was just about a brilliant actor who's been around the block for about 80 years and knows something about the world and wants to play this role and wants to climb that mountain without oxygen and without a team. Um, yeah. And um, it's, it's exciting, and it's also daunting, in part because the pieces do not all fit together. This exorcism, white triangulation of the two plots. Yes, when I stand in front of a classroom, these plots mirror each other wonderfully. <laughs> you get on stage and you sit in an audience and you start to see the ways in which things slip a little bit. Cordelia coming back with an army, the cat bite between the sisters at the end, the half dozen false endings. These are really hard to direct. They're really hard to act. <laughs> I would agree. And with I know that. you're going to act, <laughs> and you're going to. But it's not 
entirely the director or the actor's fault. Shakespeare just cared less, I think. Mm -hmm. And at this point in his career, there's real scholarly consensus that he had stopped acting. So he wasn't there on the stage when the actors are saying, WTF, at this point, <laughs> uh, why did you create this situation? I yeah. can't quite work this out. Um, help. Yes. Uh, and, and it's daunting. But, uh, and, and I have to say, I love this play. Uh, I, I spent 10 years on it. I got above base camp and camps one and two. I did not get to the peak of Everest. No, uh, no one ever really gets to the dark depths of this play or the heights of this play. They get way up there, and it's exciting to see. But it's just the most difficult play. And uh, 10 years and not getting to a feeling that I got to at Hamlet that I kind of know what he was doing. I feel I hold this play in my hand. I can turn it over. Mm. I don't have that feeling with King Lear. Mm. I, I know what it's about. I know what my limitations are in understanding it and what actors' limitations are in playing it. But it's just one of those works of art that uh, the Mona Lisa, you can you know, name a music, uh, musical equivalent, I'm sure, that is just uh, mystical in its complexity. Absolutely. Um, do you agree with Harold Bloom that it shouldn't ever be acted? You know, I, I love Harold Bloom, but um, my experience as a playgoer is very different than his. Harold Bloom was probably the most brilliant college students, teachers ever met. I was not. Harold Bloom probably studied Shakespeare in college. I studied fencing in college hey. and never took a Shakespeare course. My experience of Shakespeare is, as I said earlier, was going over to London and seeing productions uh, for 30 days at the end of every summer as a very open, curious, uh, unscholarly young man. And after six or seven years of that, I'd seen, and I would only see Shakespeare, I'd seen hundreds of Shakespeare productions. So I think Harold Bloom has missed out on what is the reason Shakespeare wrote these plays. Shakespeare did not write plays to be ready, wrote plays to be staged at particular moments in time and then reimagined over time. And uh, you lose so much. Uh, I would say the most exciting thing for me, I've taught at Columbia for 33 years now, but a decade or so ago, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and then the public theater began inviting me into the rehearsal room. They knew I never directed and couldn't. They knew I can't act either and never had. So I was kind of uh, safe to have in the room. <laughs> and I've gotten to watch actors learn apart and work together and create what happens on stage. And it has made me so much better as a Shakespearean. Uh, and I think that is one of the reasons why The Year of Lear is, uh, in, in certain ways, a better book than my Hamlet book, because uh, I wasn't in the room when it happened, uh, writing King Lear. Uh -huh. Should we open up to uh, some why questions? Not? Let's do this. Um, rather than pass my mind back and forth, if you ask a question, I'll repeat it for the rest of the audience. 
And if it's too complicated a question or too difficult, I'll turn it into an easier one. <laughs> and look at someone I just had the pleasure of reading um, Anthony Beer's book about how he created a leader. And he quotes you in there several times. And one of the things that he quoted was that you hesitate as a professor at Columbia to deal with um, what's thought in the air. The curses that Lear has for his daughters. And um, I. Some people have said that that attitude comes from Shakespeare, but I think it rather is a mimic of like um, what happens with poor Tom, where he's quoting from probably King James's uh, book on demonology, or uh, even that part, that other book about the uh, we discussed earlier. But um, I don't. I don't think that if he's using those other sources, that one has to shy away from discussing them. Those are three. It's a three-part question, and I'm happy to address each part in turn. So I'll, I'll raise each part and then address each part in, in turn. The first part had to do with Tony Sherr's. Tony uh, Anthony Sherr is uh, not just a brilliant actor, but he's a great writer and a great artist. So if you're interested in understanding how a great actor figures out his role, begin with his book, uh, oh, Year of the King, which is the greatest one. He was angry at me because my book is called The Year of Lear. That's what he wanted to call this book. <laughs> I, I, I got it out first. And I got to work with him a little bit in that production. And uh, I do appear in the book. And if you want to know what I'm going to look like in 20 years, as a, a, a painting of me that he did. Or at least not how I imagine myself. Uh, it's flattering, and I was grateful to, to work with such a star actor. The second part of the question had to do with how I deal with the question of misogyny in my undergraduate classroom. And um, that gets a two-part answer. My colleagues had never let me teach the second half of Shakespeare but once in those 33 years. They claim that. And I'm stuck with the early Shakespeare. So um, it's one of the reasons why I'm more comfortable with the early Shakespeare. So I really hadn't spent, in all those years, more than one or two or three classes on King Lear in my entire career. It's just the way it's worked out. I've worked with a lot of grown-ups on productions of this play. But it raises a larger question of what can you talk about instructively with people who are 20, and what can you talk about instructively with people who are older? I don't know an undergraduate who gets the marriage of Lady Macbeth and Macbeth which is the best marriage in Shakespeare. They just don't get that. And they don't get King Lear because he is so removed from them. And they don't really understand that as well as they would understand, in which I love teaching, the issue of consent in The Rape of Lucrece. They can read me chapter and verse on what consent means, 
but they can't really grasp the kind of deep-seated misogyny in quite the same way. They know what it is. They see it in their world. But until they've been working in the world, and until they've had to deal with it in long-term relationships, it's a different question. So I'm very much aware of what works better. And that's what I was trying to explain to Tony. Um, I half misunderstand him most of the time, and he half misunderstands <laughs> me most of the time. The third part of that question was, help me. Uh, yeah, this is the question. Was Shakespeare misogynist? Was Shakespeare racist? Was Shakespeare anti-Semitic? Or was he channeling his sources and his culture? I can't answer that decisively because I don't know what Shakespeare's political beliefs were. I don't know what kind of husband and father he was. I don't know what his religious beliefs were as well. But my gut sense is that Shakespeare was less interested in pressing his own views about the nature of women or Jews or blacks than he was in exploring the tortured ways in which his culture viewed them. And whatever his own views were, they paled in comparison to what really mattered, which was exploring dramatically the fault lines, the tensions, the cracks and fissures within his culture. And we don't live in a post-racial society. We don't live in a society, a kumbaya world, where everybody from every different religion gets along with each other. So these plays remain as relevant now as they did for that reason. You choose audience oh. members. Yeah. I, have, I have a question about one word, uh, bastard. Uh, of course, it, it means a different thing now when we call someone a bastard. But some of uh, Edmund's comments, like in his first soliloquy, it seems almost like the word is starting to transition. You know, when he says, he talks about uh, now gods stand up for bastards. That's a great question. Bastardy is a great question. And uh, it's an, I, I spent a lot of my time looking at uh, books and articles and research by social historians. Illegitimacy was really unusual in Shakespeare's day. Illegitimacy rates were only 3%. In modern Baltimore, it might be 50%. You know, I don't know the stats for America today, but they're a lot higher than 3%. So when Edmund comes in and starts saying bastard, base, bastardly, base, the real issue is not so much bastardy as it is being completely cut out economically and in every other way. He gets nothing from his father. And in fact, you know, as you like it, another play you've acted in, Orlando, as a younger son, gets nothing. So bastards and younger brothers, and I'm a younger brother, so I feel this, <laughs> um, get cut out. That's the structure of this society. Is it right? Is it wrong? Are you an eldest son? Well, obviously. So. <laughs> You would understand the rightness of Elizabethan society. But Shakespeare understands that his world is built on these fault lines. One of the questions I love to ask my students the first day of class, and if we had pen and paper here for all of you, I would ask, at what age do people get married in Shakespeare's day? And people would start saying 12, 14, somebody would 
say nine, we try to push it the other way. People were 24 or 25, men and women in Shakespeare's day when they got married. It's like the issue of the disenfranchised younger brother or bastards. And the next question that follows in an undergraduate classroom is, what do people do from the age of 14 when they reach an age of sexual awareness? And 24, a decade later, when they actually had a chance to get married. My undergraduates are very good about that. <laughs> <laughs> but we're dealing with a different social and political structure. We don't live under a monarchy. And the Brits today don't live under the same kind of absolute monarchy as Shakespeare did at the time. So these questions are slightly different. And when they're put into the mouths of different characters, Edmund is an incredibly charismatic character. And you are standing up for bastards by the end of the speech, even if in the real world you don't. One of the things that I do obsessively is look at uh, polls on what Americans think. And The Economist came out with one yesterday. And they were polling Americans on whether they think something is moral or immoral. And they break it down by party affiliation, gender, and age. And you look at things like, do people think human cloning is moral or immoral? Do people think adultery is moral or immoral? This place is filled with adultery. You know, the, the dark and vicious thing he did cost him his eyes, as is said about Gloucester at the end of the play. 80% or 90% of Americans still think, or rightly or wrongly, that adultery is morally wrong. And then you get into other issues, same-sex marriage and, and the rest. But we are a judgmental society. But we would have made those calls in different ways than Shakespeare's world. Hmm. There's also Riz uh, Ahmed, who's a wonderful British actor, did a, a reading of that speech where he changed the, there's the repetition of the word legitimate. And he, he did it the last time. He said, well, my legit mate, which I just thought was quite right. clever. <laughs> it's <laughs> such a good speech. It's so and it's such a good part. And uh, directors often have to choose who gets Edgar and who gets Edmund, because they are parts that require incredible chops. And uh, some of the best performances I've seen in the last decade of this play have been that pair. And uh, it's quite thrilling. And they are taxing roles. They are really hard roles. Absolutely. Okay. I wonder what you think of senility versus madness in Lear's uh, development. The question is, what do I think or make of senility versus madness in Lear's trajectory? And the best answer I can give to that is I, I, I have had the chance to watch and work with great actors wrestle with that question. Some have come on senile. Some have come on completely sane and defer that breakdown to midway through the play. The best answer I can give is I have no opinion about that myself. All I can do is experience an actor's trajectory and decide whether it feels true or not to my experience of this character in this production. And uh, I'm amazed at how unfaithful I am 
to <laughs> what I decided must be right in answer to that question based on the last production. I've seen leaders come in like John Lithgow, who's a spectacular leader. Go Lamb. Comic. Yeah. Quite comic in the beginning. And I'm thinking, wow, that's the way it should be done. And then Simon Russell be all coming in like Stalin at the beginning of his production. That's the way it should be done. So I'm completely unfaithful to any position in response to that question. And I've been spared by my colleagues having had the chance to actually commit to that in a lecture. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I Tested will right before I came here, and I did come from Montana, and part of the draw was definitely to see you. Um, and I'm wondering, in that preface, I read that you still believe that uh, William Shakespeare wrote the plays. So you still believe that, yes? Let me uh, contextualize it. In between 1599 and 1606, I wrote another book, and that book is called Contested Will. Who wrote Shakespeare? I spent a lot of time on titles. That's the best title. <laughs> and, um, I did. And the book was written because at that moment in time, one of the things that was happening in two spheres that I care about, one Shakespeare studies and the other American civil life, were, were changing. The thing that was happening in American civil life that was changing that motivated me to write that book was the comfort level many of my fellow Americans were having with conspiracy thinking. And I don't mean by political party. I mean, we were all becoming a lot more comfortable with believing that there are all kinds of conspiracies going on out there. And I began to infiltrate, spy, whatever word you want to use, on the chat groups, which were conspiracy chat groups, churning out arguments that Shakespeare did not write the plays attributed to him. One of the things that has been my, my good fortune in my life is I've done some documentaries for the British uh, BBC, and uh, as part of that, I got to put on the white gloves and, and actually handle the documents, such as the document that shows Shakespeare is named with the other king's men by King James in 1604 as his company. And uh, it, it's exciting, and you see the facts, and you're holding the documents, which are real. They're not fake documents. And I decided to write a book not about, yes, Shakespeare wrote it, the other 77 candidates didn't write it, but why people want to believe that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, and why some of the greatest minds of the modern era, because nobody believed that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, or at least said so or wrote so until the 1850s. Why some 250 years ago he was writing these plays, did people like Mark Twain, Helen Keller, Sigmund Freud start believing or needed to believe Henry James? These are heavy hitters. So what led these individuals 
to doubt that Shakespeare wrote the plays attributed to them. And they're not Shakespeareans. They didn't look at the data. They didn't look at the documents. And they didn't really understand how these plays were created, which requires a lot of factual information that probably when I left grad school, I couldn't have answered. And to underscore the point, um, two points. One, that I'm really not a nice guy. And two, uh, and I care deeply about this, and that it's not a left or right thing or Republican or Democrat thing. After that book, Contested Will, came out, I got a letter from the address from the Supreme Court of the United States. <laughs> and I thought initially that it was jury duty. And I, <laughs> I opened the letter and it was from Justice Stevens, who's now in his 90s, and one of the great liberal jurists this country has ever seen, and warms the heart of any liberal Democrat um, like myself. And Inity writes to me saying, I've examined the six signatures of Shakespeare. They're all wobbly. This man was illiterate. What can you say to that? <laughs> and I wrote, Dear Justice Stevens. <laughs> this wasn't email. This was like fixed stationary back and forth. This was much thicker. And, um, I wrote, Dear Justice Stevens, I honor your career and service to this nation. I noticed that your secretary both typed this letter and signed it for you. <laughs> so that you, like another person I deeply admire, William Shakespeare, must be functionally illiterate too. <laughs> Sincerely, I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> A week passes, another letter comes to Justice Stevens. This time he signed it. Real slippery. I'm going to donate the entire correspondence after you step to the Folger Shakespeare Library, but by the scholars here can examine uh, the veracity of this. It's all true, it's going to be in the public someday, I hope not soon, for his sake. And as the exchange proceeded, I pointed out that Justice Stevens, who was a supporter of the Earl of Oxford, who died in 1604, two years before King Lear is finished, um, could not have written the plays. But more than that, that the candidate that he was supporting was first promoted by uh, a man who was deeply undemocratic a man named Loney, uh, spelled Loney but pronounced Loney, <laughs> was believed that men ruled over women, parents over children, and he wanted to restore a hierarchical order in the world that was fundamentally anti-democratic. And I wrote to Justice Stevens, and I was really, I mean, I spent a lot of time on these letters, because I had enormous, and still have, enormous respect for him. And I said, how could somebody like you who was committed to democracy, sign on to a candidate who was fundamentally anti-democratic. You cannot create kind of space between these two beliefs. And he said, yes, I can. And then I ghosted him. <laughs> because he refused to accept that every one of these seven or so candidates is not just a candidate, not just the Earl of Rutland or 
you know, Queen Elizabeth or my brother-in-law, you know, as a candidate who wrote Shakespeare. There's a politics behind each of these. And unless you recognize and identify what that politics is and what's behind that, you can't understand that argument. And that is what interested me about Mark Twain and Helen Keller and Sigmund Freud and great actors today like Mark Rylance who doesn't believe that Shakespeare or Shakespeare. And I would urge you, if you have a spouse or family member or close personal friend or fellow church goer, synagogue goer, who does not believe that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, do not argue with them. It is a matter of faith. It is not a matter of fact. And I found, and I've argued with Roland Emmerich, who created that really bad movie, Anonymous, that started lift off and then plummeted and destroyed the hopes of candidates of the Earl of Oxford from here to around the world. Uh, I can just tell you that um, you will not change the minds of anyone. If you are interested in this question, whichever side of it you are on, we contest it will. Most scholars will not touch the subject. I'm interested in why people think what they do. And I can tell you today, in our conspiracy-infested world, what's happening in Shakespeare studies is happening with far greater consequence in our political life. Mm -hmm. oh, I would like to also say that another great book to read is by Margaret Marcy Green called I, Prince Two and Love Shakespeare. So it's, it's taken from the cipher. There are a lot of people, the, the argument is, um, uh, Tell me the name of that title again. I, Prince Tudor, wrote Shakespeare. I, Prince Tudor, wrote Shakespeare. One, one of the really interesting uh, aspects of the Shakespeare authorship controversy, as it's called, is the emphasis on ciphers and deciphering the words as if they are coded. And uh, that is a very, very, to me, dangerous way to go. It's not that there aren't any literary works that are coded. I discussed that in the book. It's just that I've looked at these works very carefully and Mark Twain was a big believer in codes. Helen Keller thought that she could feel the codes as she read them in Braille. And it's again a matter of faith. If you want to find codes, you will find codes. The only true value, and I mean this sincerely, the only true value to the Shakespeare authorship controversy was one of the people who got his start in life as a somebody brought in to explore the codes, and I write about this in the book as well, went on to become the man who broke Code Purple, uh, exposing maneuvers of the Japanese fleet during the Second World War. So you can say that the Shakespeare authorship controversy helped win the war. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any other questions? I'm very interested in The Fool because, and there's a reason that this playwright, that Shakespeare, I believe, had The Fool disappear. I think he gets eaten by Lear. And it takes a while to digest. This is my granddaughter. <laughs> um, I, it takes a while to digest something. And I think that's part of the point of the play. He learns something about compassion. Uh, there's a long list of things. And if the fool stayed around, I'm not sure I agree with the idea of having him hung. I think that's unnecessary and distracting. Melodrama usually is, like conspiracies, etc. 
But having him go, knowing that the audience then and today misses him somehow, means we're supposed to look and see what is Lear learning? It's a very rich question. This is obviously a very informed audience. I don't go to many places where a year has been spent brooding on this play. <laughs> uh, I go to a lot of prisons where we have captive audiences. That's a different question. Uh, the question really is about the fool of Lear. We could spend another hour and a half on, on the question of the, the language you use is eaten by by, by the, I would use the word absorbed in a way of the uh, uh, There's no question of that. The parting of the fool is a crucial moment. And the production I saw most recently was Tony Sher's production, the RSC production. And the fool is great in this. And he joins the poor naked wretches. And he's abandoned at this moment. He abandons Lear. And he then is abandoned. And you know that he will die by the side of the road of uh, frozen, hungry, ignored. So that there are different kinds of social and political statements that can be made. I'm not saying they inhere in this play, but that's why we keep caring. That's why we're showing up today. This play matters. and. The world is a difficult thing to figure out. Shakespeare is a compass, not always an easy one to read. And uh, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to follow uh, him as I try to understand the world I live in. Uh, but the world is a complex place, and these plays are complex objects. One last mm -hmm. question, I think. All right. One last question. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't study this so. um, At that time, was there a, a burden of elderly generation? Well, that's a really great question. I've never been asked, was there the burden of taking care of elders in Shakespeare's day? Median death rates, you know, you're married at 25 because your parents died at 45, so you got the house. So there were very few three generation under one roof households. That having been said, Shakespeare's own parents lived to quite an advanced age, and he had a responsibility for them. To what extent he felt that in writing his play, I can't tell. You want to follow that up? Go ahead. I wanted to add the element of nature in this play. Mm -hmm. It comes up so often, and whether the cycle of holding Building up the elderly or letting nature. Yeah. Nature is, um, thou nature art my goddess, going back to the bastardy speech of uh, Edmund. Nature works in many, many complex ways. Physical nature in this play, nature in this godless or non Christian world of this play, that too would take many hours to unpack. But the sense of obligation of one generation to the next is a profound part of this play. And again, I suspect, as baby boomers like myself age and control more and more resources in this country, 
our following generations will recognize that inequality. And that's one of the issues that I'm sure will feed into future productions and iterations of, of Gimini. These were really, really great questions. Great interlocutor. I'm excited for your production and your playing one of Lear's daughters soon. And uh, I just am excited for all of us going to see productions of this and other plays to help us understand and navigate uh, the complicated world in which we now find ourselves. So thank you.